you don't need to be the leader in everything that you do. You don't need to be the expert that gets 30,000 likes on a LinkedIn post. You need to be the person that's commenting on all those though. And you need to be learning from those. Welcome to Making the Brand, the podcast where marketing and pop culture collide. I'm your host, Brianne Fleming. I can't wait to chat about brands, boy bands, and everything in between. Because brands who have a pulse on pop culture can create adoring fans of their own. Usually on this podcast, we talk about pop culture, but today we're talking about popping pimples. <laughs> I'm joined by my new Twitter friend, Andrew Stallings, who will be sharing some marketing takeaways from the TLC hit show, Dr. Pimple Popper. Thanks for being here, Andrew. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. So this should be really gross, but also educational. I think we might have some Dr. Pimple Popper fans who are listening. But before we get into it, Andrew, I'd love for you to take a second to introduce yourself and tell us about your background. Yeah, yeah. I uh, first and foremost appreciate you having me on. It's funny that uh, a funny exchange of uh, popping pimples can <laughs> lead to new, new and great relationships. Uh, so my background, uh, as I was explaining to you prior to us jumping on, uh, I've, I've kind of a very diverse and niche background in the world of sports and entertainment. Uh, started my career uh, at Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. I was a producer and on-air talent for about five years, helping out with you know a number of different sports channels, but mostly focused on the NASCAR side. Mm -hmm. uh, so from there, I switched over to agency side, working with Octagon, which is a global sports sponsorship agency headquartered up here in Connecticut. Uh, I got to come up here when I kind of hit my glass ceiling on the media side, at least in my mind, and I really wanted to better understand the business sponsorship side of what brands do, of what athletes do, and overall just marketing. You know, I went to school for communications and minored in psychology, which again can correlate, you know, to the world of marketing and sales. But I think directly understanding sports and entertainment, brands, marketing, and how everything kind of pivots was important. So I uh, spent a number of years over at Octagon, traveled the world, built a number of great relationships with some incredible clients and team members. Uh, and my last account I worked on over there was Anheuser-Busch. So I was working with Budweiser and the FIFA World Cup team on their relationship. I oversaw the global sustainability relationship between Corona and the World Surf League and Parlay for the Oceans. I uh, spent a number of months over in Russia, jumped over to the Maldives, uh, went to Sri Lanka, Colombo, a number of other great places. Uh, and then honestly, I just kind of burnt out and it's incredible to think that you can do that at the age of 26, but I was, I was spent. And, you know, so I switched over to a smaller agency that focused more on events marketing while still working with beer in the beer category of Anheuser-Busch in the U S did that for a little bit. Then went over to the brand side with Constellation Brands, uh, and oversaw field marketing efforts in the Northeast for their, uh, core category. And in that whole process, I had built, like I said, a number of great relationships with brands, with athletes, and I noticed that there was just kind of a void as far as all of these incredible athletes, not necessarily in NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB, but in action sports, esports, NASCAR, golf, tennis, lacrosse, etc. And you didn't really have to be Ricky Fowler or Tony Hawk or Ronda Rousey to really have a great story, have a great niche, and really, you know, 
be something or someone that a brand would be, you know, thrilled to partner with, you know, uh, overall. So with that being said, I kind of started, you know, one night after a few beers after a men's league hockey game. And I said, okay, I have the words athletes. I have the words opportunity. What can I do with these? And I smashed them together, made a funky run on word called Othello uh, that nine times out of 10 people can't really pronounce. And uh, I just, I kind of started off small, one or two athletes in the world of action sports who I knew Two turned to five, five turned to 10. And now we're up to about 25 athletes that we represent globally. Uh, we have about 48 brands that we work with on different creative campaigns, recruitment models, uh, and overall just athlete management structured partnerships. So um, I know my way around, you know, corporate brands. I know my way around different athlete brands, but uh, more importantly, I think just identifying brands as normal consumers like yourself and, and myself is uh, it's something that I fundamentally have to focus on every single day. Wow, your your background has more to it than I even realized. You like you said, you've been around the world. I'll have to have you back for another episode about sports versus dermatology. But <laughs> <laughs> and I love how you said that. You know, it's not just those A list athletes that have a compelling story to share. I think that's such an important personal branding lesson as well. People think you know they they. Everyone thinks you start off with this huge following, but you really just have to put, put yourself out there and start with a small audience and just get people to relate to you and get to know you and you can, you know, you can make it big that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at Dr. Lee of, you know, uh, the uh, pimple popper show, it's, it's very specific to that. And I think we'll dive into that a little bit today is when you have a very specific niche it's so important to really kind of master that niche. I, I really hate the term expert in today's society. I, I think mm -hmm. it's so difficult with everything evolving, knowledge, information, technology to really be an expert. And you don't want to be one dimensional as such. But when it comes to your niche and your passion and something that you're really, really good at and you know, harness that and master it the best way you can and kind of look at it as just a nucleus. Like your niche is your nucleus and you yeah. kind of just slowly evolve into different bins of that nucleus to, to build it out. Awesome. So, you know, with athletes, I, that's what I tell them all the time. It's, you don't need to be the world champion skimboarder that then pivots over to fashion and designing your own merchandise line just because you think that's gonna be the next monetary investment. It really needs to make sense. Like your consumer has to buy in, people have to really buy in and resonate with it. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's a sales tactic. It's helping people understand that there is more to it than just a very simple cut and dry element of, you know, oh, it's so easy by going here to here kind of thing. Right, right. And also just the term expert, it's so hard to measure expertise. How do you quantify who's more of an expert than anyone else? Um, you know, thought leadership has kind of been another icky phrase I've seen out there. It's just really hard to, to quantify. So I totally get that. Yeah. And I think when you look on LinkedIn, it's a perfect example. Um, yeah. it's, it's so difficult because we're obviously living in a time right now where you want to put your best foot forward and you want to look like you're the best and most qualified for the next position of what you do. But mm -hmm. in this specific moment of time right now where, you know, the unemployment rate is at an all time high and people are struggling to find the creativity and balance I've really challenged a lot of people within my network and my team to look at everything as an artist and look at it as a blank canvas. You know, it starts with one stroke, right? And again, you don't necessarily have to have the whole vision built out, 
but you're much better off painting your own resume and painting your own vision and illustration of how things like come to life through your eyes rather than saying and trying to spew out repurpose facts and data and algorithms on LinkedIn. Because I, I don't know about you, I log on and I'm just like, I get, I, get, I get nauseated, you know, I, I, I want, I want personality. I want elements like this where, you know, good organic exchanges can happen and we can learn and grow from each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from a speaker that I love uh, named Sally Hogshead. I always come back to this. She always says it's good to be better and to be the best as uh, the best at something, but it's better to be different. And I think just having that, like you said, that organic exchange, having your own personality and showing your expertise that way versus trying to prove you're the best all the time, it's going to feel a lot more comfortable and just better for you and your audience. So I love all Absolutely. that. I can't yeah. wait to get into this. This is already so good so far. So, okay. So yes, backtrack. We connected on Twitter. I sent out this tweet where I said, there's only two types of people in the world. Those who can watch Dr. Pimple Popper and those who can't. So I assume you are one of those people who can stomach it and sit through, sit through an episode. Yeah, I, I can probably sit there and eat a whole bowl of tapioca pudding while watching it. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I'm the same guy that's, I, I can't get my blood drawn. I, I, I'm uh, not good with needles. I, mm -hmm. I don't normally have an uneasy stomach, but it's, it's kind of this taboo for me, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I know when we asked people on Twitter yesterday if they had any questions, somebody was speaking about just that. And there is kind of that taboo, right? And it's mm -hmm. almost like, as much as I don't want to go down this rabbit hole at all, it's the illusion of like, you know, kind of the, like, you shouldn't be looking at this kind of thing. You right. know, it's like the, the scantily clad women in the bikini or the six pack chiseled guy, you know, mm -hmm. looking so good in his outfit. It's like, yeah. hmm, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that, but, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's a fascination tactic. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, I, I just get, fascinated. And as I was sitting there last night, I was just looking at videos and information for this discussion today, I went down the rabbit hole. I started with one video and I'm just again and again and again. And I'm like, oh honey, I'm gonna tell my wife to come in the room. Like, look at this rock that just came out of somebody. She's like, oh, and she's a nurse. And she, even she's like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. right. So, but I, yeah, it's, it's the weirdest thing. I can't explain it. I, yeah. I can't get my blood drawn without passing out, but I can watch this and be completely enthralled with, right. with everything that's happening on the screen. Have you ever heard of the Streisand effect? Someone just told me about this recently. I would love for you to educate me on it. Yeah, I forgot what the context was and who mentioned it. So maybe someone will, will tweet me after they hear this. But uh, it was, it's this you know, theory named after Barbara Streisand where in the early 2000s, there, were, there was some, uh, I think it was a helicopter photo taken of her house, so like a, a bird's eye view of her house. And she did not want them on the internet. So she was making this huge deal that she has to get these paparazzi photos. She doesn't want people to know where she lives. And what ended up happening is she just ignited this interest where everyone just had to see what these photos look like and what she really didn't want people to see. And it was harmless. It was just her house, but I guess just for privacy reasons, she didn't want, she didn't want them on the internet. So it had that opposite effect where because something is taboo or forbidden, you know, it, it piques our interest. So it's, it's really fascinating to see how that works and uh, how we respond to that. Yeah. And I think you see a lot of it today with, with paywall content, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, for, you know, just fans pages and, you know, kind of stuff that you normally shouldn't probably watch or see that's buried behind a paywall now. I mean, look, I'll say this. I think that model certainly didn't work many years ago. No mm-hmm. one that has read the New York Times for years is all of a sudden going to pay for it. But I'll, I'll give you one example. I, I read a good amount of editorial every day. I try to spend at least an hour or two in my mornings kind of catching up on stuff. Yeah. Business Insider, which has notoriously been kind of the publication to me that did not stay in their swim lane. They were the business insider talking about the next fashion craze in children in Milan. You're like, Wait, how does this yeah. mean what? But <laughs> their influencer and marketing team, um, they have a few writers and editors over there. It's all paywall content. I am this close to going ahead and subscribing to it because the content in the headlines alone are that good. And I think when you have something that can catch a niche, catch somebody in that specific niche, it's very easy to, to want them to get through that. And even if it's like LinkedIn premium, right? It's like, ah, you know, I'll, you're going to give it to me for free for a month. Why wouldn't I do it? You pay and forget much like myself. I'm three months into a membership and, <laughs> I barely used it. Yeah. So th- there is a strategy to all of that. But I, I do think it does exist. You you kind of have to have something that's captivating enough, a little bit of a tease. And again, get them in the funnel. And just, again, the hardest thing with marketing or sales or business is retainment. How do you keep people there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Sandra Lee sure has done that. She sure is niche. Um, you know, there's no there was no one out there doing what she was doing. Um, so could you give people, I mean, we've, already kind of touched on it, but just a little bit of background on the show and what it's about and the premise of it. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Pimple Popper is the story of American dermatologist, Dr. Sandra Lee, uh, who I believe is based out in California. And it is now turned into a American cult reality TV show that airs weekly, I believe on TLC. And it follows around this dermatologist and now internet celebrity known as Dr. Sandra Lee and her encounters with not just the rich and beautiful and influential people, but I think the beauty of what she's highlighted is a lot of her patients are individuals and people that are very relatable to you and me or very relatable to the blue collar citizen in Arkansas or New Mexico or even Montana. And I think all of it is super relatable content now um, when you kind of get to know these individual stories and, and those elements and pieces. But Dr. Lee has started this many years ago um, just by slowly beginning to put the content, you know, on YouTube and putting the content on digital and social media. And, you know, you can even go back and see she was met with a variety of failures in the entire process. I mean, starting off in the world of dermatology, I read somewhere like she didn't even get into dermatology school out of the gate. You know, she was, you know, held back and she considers that to be one of her biggest failures. And I think a lot of us, you know, kind of go through that. I mean, you're talking to somebody that was rejected from 13 colleges and then ultimately wrote a note to the dean at the one that he really wanted to go to, to get into it. So, you know, we all have to find our ways and alternatives around it. And I think in her case, She, you know, had her content flagged many times by YouTube for being too gory, too grotesque. And ultimately, I think, again, small pivots, but not massive pivots, has led to now what is arguably one of the biggest cult content pieces in American reality television right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, she, like you said, she started it off on social media and it's hugely successful. We've got four seasons of the show now and people, like you said, relate to it. And she's developed such a reputation that people will fly from Montana or from wherever they'll fly across the country to go to her office because she's become this, this miracle worker in the world of, of dermatology. So we did touch on, it, uh, touch on it a little bit, but why do you think people are so fascinated with this show? What else is there? Yeah, there's, there's a number of pieces to it. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago with, with just the niche effect, right? Mm-hmm. You take kind of this hyper niche of dermatology and pimples and, and cysts and you know, kind of that element, you keep it in that bubble, right? Add a a beautiful woman that is again not in her early 20s but a little bit older beautiful woman that has a great personality and is super approachable to her audience that mm-hmm. certainly helps and checks a box so that yeah. elements one avenue on top of that you have someone that also shares you know layers deeper to her personal journey you know everything every time you watch an episode with Dr. Sandra Lee you kind of learn a little bit more about her it's not all in on her, but I think you learn more about her team, her family, her relationships. And I think you kind of keep coming back to each episode because you want to learn more and more about her as well. So I think there's the, the personal relationship and affinity effect that can grow from that. Um, but I also think there's a human need, you know, you don't, you don't see a lot of people doing it, which, uh, you know, I'll talk about in a second, but this is something that obviously bugs many Americans and many people globally. You know, they, they have these abnormalities or these cysts or these pimples in these different locations and areas, albeit whether they're cosmetically, whether they can lead to bigger issues with, with cancer or other diseases. It's so fascinating because I think, again, people want to understand it because mm-hmm. they, they dumb it down. They, they make it very fascinating to look at it but it's almost like you're drawn into the education component of it too. I, I think if you and I would have seen a massive cyst on the side of somebody's face like that, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's attached to their brain. It's a tumor. It, it's a ticking time bomb, right? But what you don't understand is that really it's cosmetic and it hasn't reached down into the surface and it, you just learn, you learn. Right. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a dermatology expert or a medical expert, but for some reason having those you know, kind of interesting alternative facts that you can take to your next, you know, barbecue or family gathering when you're socially distancing safely to, to throw out there. It's, it's again, it's, it's added ammo. It's added pop culture ammo in a lot of ways. So it, there's, there's so many different elements and pieces to it. But I think, again, obviously the face value is the taboo effect. It's not something that you normally should see or should watch, but you can't help. It's a train wreck. You can't help but look. You, you're drawn in. You don't want to look away. If you were to tell me, hey, Andrew, like I have a video of this person where the train is coming 150 miles an hour and it is going to blow them to smithereens. Human Andrew in a crowded room is going to tell you, oh, that's horrible. No, no, I don't want to see it. You look me in the eyes and tell me deep down that somewhere there's not a little bit of I wonder what that looks like. like right. You know, like, you, again, you, you don't want to be judged, but you can't help but wonder. There's the wonder effect. So, yeah. you know, I, I think there's so many different pieces that stem just from that top layer, which is we shouldn't look at it, but we want to, and we can't help it. 
but we don't want to be judged, right? You know, a lot of people look at different things, you know, like fashion and what they eat and everything is so heavily influenced by judgment uh, and what we do every single day. You know, I, even for this interview, I'm like, oh man, should I go do my hair and do it, you know, look all great. I was like, ah, you know, she's got to get the real me and my element backwards, yeah. hat, t-shirt, here we go. But it. you got to get rid of the judgment. And I, I do think that a lot of people, you know, they fear that judgment. They fear, you know, what will people think if I watch this? Like, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend probably watching Dr. Pimple Popper on your first date. But when you've been married for almost two years, like I have, you know, I, I think you're okay. You can watch it on the couch and, and not withstand too much judgment. So yeah. And don't watch it during dinner too. I feel like it's always on at like six, seven o'clock. I'm like, what are they doing? <laughs> you know? But I think you hit the nail on the head. There's something about it that is refreshing because it's actually, it's unsexy, which is yeah. so counter from what we see from advertising and just the marketing industry. We're always seeing perfect models and this facade of perfection. And this was like, look how, Look how gross this is. Let's let's peel back the curtain here and just show you what people are really going through. So it explored a topic that people were really wondering about, but no one was was covering in such um, in such detail and so um, candidly. Yeah, and I mean, I think we we see that, like you said, with with body image, uh, especially. You know, we have supermodels now that. You know, we're seeing, I know Sports Illustrated has done a great job over the last few years of, you know, leveraging plus size models, models of different colors, diversities, race, gender, um, and even age, you know, that it speaks more to the human effect of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you kind of see that a little bit more, but you don't want that to be everything. I think we do lean on the media to keep things a little bit like, out of reach at times. If everything was as obtainable as, oh, I could grab a scalpel and do this myself, we probably wouldn't have the, the luxury or the premium model of what we do in marketing and advertising. But mm -hmm. I think it's a good balance because like I said, you have someone like Dr. Lee who has this beautiful, very approachable, you know, culturally diverse image that people can like be like, ah, you know, like that, that's nice. Like that's, I, that's how I want my doctor to be. But right. then insert Bertha from Arkansas that has a cyst growing out of every armpit left and right. And you also can be like, I, I know Bertha. I, <laughs> I get that. I totally understand that. So it puts you in this like middle ground of like comfort and uncomfort. And it's kind of a, a tug of war on your you know, heartstrings as you go through it that at the end of the episode, you're like, oh, oh man, honey, another one, one more. Okay, cool. One more. That's how it is. Right. And you also see, I always say transformational content always works. And you see this transformation, the way that these um, clients and patients feel just so held back by some type of skin condition, whatever they have. And you see them transform and Dr. Lee helps them and they have this whole new outlook just because of something on their skin. So it's like you said, it's really feel good content that, you know, once you can, can get past the, uh, the gross aspect of it, it, it makes, it gives you the, the feels. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All the feels. Yes. So how <laughs> would you really just summarize what the takeaways for marketers are from this show? Yeah. So I think the, the number one term, the, the marketing buzzword that we've beaten into a pulp throughout these last, you know, 20 minutes or so is, is niche. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, 
you you see Dr. Lee and she's very specifically focused on dermatology, which I think in the US, I read a stat, there's only about 10,000 practicing, you know, dermatologists right now year round. And that number is, is going down more and more, especially with the shrinking economy. People, you know, kind of think like, what do I not need to invest into so much as far as my own medical and health and wellness. And I think dermatology probably becomes then second tier to some, not all, of course, but you know, that becomes a smaller number in a smaller demographic. Um, and once you kind of get more down to a more catered audience and niche, it, it almost makes it as, you know, you're the small, the small little experiment in the middle of Times Square. Once you have a partnership like TLC and the social following and stuff like that, you almost want it to kind of invert more than you want it to, you know, blow up like one of those pimples in your fame. You know, you need it to be something where you want more people to crowd around. You want to bring more people in. You, you kind of almost hope and want that the strategy and the communication and the people that you serve become a little bit more exclusive. It's, it's like a, you know, a shoe line, right? You know, this is such a great shoe, but there's only five made in the world. People want more, people want more. So, you know, I, I always am baffled to see from a media standpoint, how you look at, you know, something like the world of like consumer products and, and how people appreciate, you know, something a little bit more exclusive and limited. And how do you do that with the world of content? I think we look at movies, for example, when's the last time you really saw a brand new, fresh concept movie that came out into Hollywood that wasn't repurposed or reimagined with something that we haven't probably seen already in the last 10 or 15 years, right? I think originality is very, very tough to crack the nut on. Um, And it's a motto that I myself try to instill every single day is that originality is everything. But it's tough. It's so tough because we're held to these deadlines. We're held to these numbers, these budgets. And, you know, when you have the success and fame of starting a new idea and kind of letting it mainstream kind of blow up before you have a TV partnership or you're pitching against it, you know, you're kind of in control. And I think with Dr. Lee, the most beautiful thing is that she self-funded this whole project to start, you know, before TLC, she was doing all of this on her own already. And if you really think about it, TLC or not, she can still run a business successfully and she can still build a content series that I'm sure Facebook or YouTube or Twitch would want to buy into or a brand partner that would at least give her the funding to have subliminal product placement, you know, done throughout. There's so many different pieces that once you've kind of hit that peak, the sky's the limit. You can't just continuously ride the wave until it crashes, you know, because once it crashes, it goes flat. You're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's done. And it'll happen. It'll just be done in a blink of an eye. So what I always say is like when you're in the niche, you know, again, you want to become a little bit more inverted, you know, to kind of grow exclusivity and start small. But then you also have to be willing to flip the script. And that's something that I've been kind of keeping close track on with, with this show specifically in Dr. Lee is, you know, okay, we're talking about zits and pimples. She's gone into bigger like lymphomas and, you know, cysts and everything like that, which I think is kind of how she slowly started to pivot. But usually you'll see it with many of these reality TV show hosts is that they'll then partner up or collaborate with house hunters or something like that. And they'll create like a new series, like, nine times out of 10, I would say they usually don't do that well, but it's more of a risk to take that, you know, than doing the same exact thing over and over and over and over again, no matter what your consumer says, they're Mm -hmm. going to want to see you try and fail 
than to continue to do the exact same thing and wear off. So, you know, kind of just being able to pivot and reimagine and think about the innovation tactics of your own brand, of your own business, and what potentially can, can come from that is something that I always, I always tell my clients. I would tell Dr. Lee that, and I'm sure that she knows this, but what's not here in three months, but what's here in three years? You know, what's that plan and what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, she's definitely used her brand to open doors and, you know, she started just with social media. Now she has a TV show, obviously. And I've even noticed anytime there's a segment on a national news show, like the Today Show or anything, that's anytime they do a segment that has anything to do with skincare, they call her up. She becomes like the expert correspondent that people know, you know, it can be about um, protecting your skin from sun damage or have nothing to do with really pimples necessarily, but she has positioned herself as this go-to dermatologist that the public knows and is comfortable with. So it's really worked in her favor. I'm also glad you brought up risk because I feel like that's another thing that she just embraced. You know, the idea of popping pimples and filming it and putting it on the internet probably seemed so out there to people, something that They may not have understood. People probably thought, you know, no one wants to see that, but it was a risk worth taking. So I'm curious, how do you apply some of these takeaways with your own clients? I want to hear more about your work and any inspiration you take from the show um, in your own day to day. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. I I think risk is just imminent in everything that we do. I, I think too often people will label risk as something that's so drastic and so extreme. But what a lot of people don't realize is that every single minute of every single day, you're taking a calculated risk, whether that is in your communication vocabulary and how you're talking to your significant other, or if it's something as I'm going to cross the street of a busy highway or what I'm going to eat for lunch. Mm -hmm. Um, All of it has, you know, all of it's a calculated risk, right? For me and what I look at it from my own personal brand is I was told my entire life, like, Oh, you should be in sales. You should be in sales. Like you're, you know, such a schmoozer. You're Eddie Haskell, like, you know, ha ha ha. And you know, I took it as a compliment, but I never wanted to leave the security of an incredible job being on boats in the Maldives with some of the biggest brands, you know, what? Like, I don't want to be in sales. I don't want to do that. But you kind of have this crossroads where either you're going to make the decision or life's going to have a way to make that decision for you. And with my last job before I actually went all in on a fellow group, my hand was forced and I had just gotten married at an incredible job over at Constellation Brands, nice corner office, new car, beautiful salary. I was loving life. Mm -hmm. However, I went and got married. I came back and we landed on the tarmac from our honeymoon at JFK airport And I had a voicemail that loaded up from the previous week saying, hey, Mr. Stallings, could you please come in at 6 a.m. on Monday? We need to have a conversation with you in HR, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh. And I apparently was part of a 95-person layoff, you know, that happened while I was on my honeymoon. Again, a lot of people sit there and they could say, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. It's terrible. I had never felt more relieved in my entire life to have a fresh start, have a fresh mindset, and at least try, at least one point to try and give myself an honest six-month window to build something out. Because I, I could at least say that if I failed, 
I tried. Someone could say, man, remember that good idea you had like 70 years ago? Yeah, I tried it and it, you know, didn't really work out. But if you go all in on something and you try it, you know, you never know. And here we are two and a half, three years later and we're, we're chucking along. So I, I tell my brands the same thing. I tell my athletes the same thing. Sometimes your hand's going to be forced, which again, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it and truck forward and go along. Sometimes you have to see the writing on the wall to make a calculated risk and decision in order to be one step ahead to capitalize on the right moment when that wave is coming. Or you could just stay comfortable. You could work your nine to five. You could do the bare minimum, never get promoted. And again, I do not discredit people who do that. Like there's a place in this world for those kind of people and God bless them. And I really do think that if that's your path and that's your glory, comfort is okay. Just you should always want to be a little bit better. You know, whether that's learning, whether that's diversifying your skills, just be a little bit better. And it doesn't have to be better than tomorrow or like just a little bit better every year, maybe every month, you know, try and, and let better be defined to you. Like, don't let it be like, oh, my boss wants me to learn Google AdWords and analytics. So I need to be better on that. What are you going to like really bring to the table that you think could be good? And I think understanding those tactics are, are huge. I, I tell athletes all the time, you don't have to be a video creator and know how to do Adobe suite and all that to make sure that your content pops out and that you stand out above the rest. Your message just needs to be different. Like, who are you? Where are you from? Like, who is your mother? Like, who is your, like, talk about the personal side of life and those relationships. Right. And, you know, I think when you, when you open up that gateway, it, again, that's just where innovation can happen. It's all from starting at ground zero and, and really trying to humanize what we do. There's no database, no shortcut in life to really putting a price on human interaction, human, inter human communication, and genuine emotion to every single thing that we do. Mm-hmm. That's such an inspiring and relevant message right now, because especially in the pandemic, a lot of people have been laid off and it's given them that opportunity to go and pursue something they always thought about doing, but never really got around to it. And it's become that silver lining for people. I think there's, there's always more that people can give. There's more that they have to share. I'm one of those people that think everyone has a book or a podcast in them that they need to put out there. And it's really great to see all of that coming out right now. And you also reminded me, you know me, I love my pop culture references. Um, when I went and saw Jennifer Lopez in concert uh, last Ooh, year, oh, that's it, was good so one. Good. it was good. <laughs> um, it was a, a tour for her 50th birthday. And during one of the intermissions when she's back, you know, changing into feathers and all that stuff that JLo does, <laughs> they showed a clip from when she was, I think, I want to say when she was 30 years old, and she was being interviewed and people were questioning, like, you're a successful actress. Why would you ever want to go into music? You know, just stay in, in your lane here. You're doing well as an actress. And she said something like how she doesn't want to end up being 50 and always wondering if she should have pursued music because it was in her heart and it was something she wanted to do. So as someone that's a, a triple threat who never really, you know, sticks to one thing, I think there's a lot we can learn from from her and from that message that you just said. Yeah. And let it be known, someone like Jennifer Lopez is, is kind of the anomaly, right? You, because I, I think it, it kind of goes counterintuitive to what we were talking about in the beginning is how you should stay in your lane, stay in your right. niche. But it's okay to realize that your niche isn't going to pan out. 
You know, like if you really put in that enough time and effort and you're just like, man, I'm never going to be a reality TV show dermatologist that pops pimples for a living and makes millions of dollars, that's okay. But you have to kind of set those, you know, rules and, and timelines to make sure that, you know, you're going to get out at the right time for you to be able to sleep at night and, and to be okay with that. JLo is, I mean, again, 360, like incredible all around. I think every single female in the world wishes they had a 50-year-old body like her. Every single male in the world wishes they had a 50-year-old body like her. It, <laughs> it's, it's just everything. I mean, and I love what her and A-Rod have done over the past few years as far as like bringing their marriage, you know, kind of to the main lines. A-Rod's an example. Like, I don't think, I think he's, again, he looks at his relationship with J-Lo and he's been able to kind of pull positive out of a negative, you know, his whole steroid scandal and everything else of his life but he's done such a great job of reinventing his own brand. You know, he, he has his own TV show and everything. Now I personally think that they are the sports and entertainment power couple that yeah. a lot of people don't necessarily give enough credit to. I think it's very easy to look at, you know, different couples that are, you know, again, doing so much elite things, but it, they're doing everything and they're doing everything really well. So yeah. I just, their TikToks, everything. I, I, I love <laughs> yeah. I love them. I love them. They're the best. I actually read an article. Um, I live in South Florida near um, Miami. And are, are you familiar with Star Island? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I read an article. It was TMZ, unfortunately. You never know what to believe. <laughs> but it was saying that they're eyeing a property on Star Island and how all the residents are just so excited because they think it'll bring up the property value and Star Island has kind of lost its luster over the years. So, so yeah, they have such serious star power and everyone everyone wants to live and be neighbors with JLo and A-Rod. <laughs> Could you imagine if in your building where you're living that all of a sudden you come out one morning to get your newspaper and A-Rod is just standing there? Like, what would you do? Like, I don't know. I, I would be like, Alex, yeah. good morning. <laughs> like, what would you even say to that? You'd be like, uh, okay, um, back to my morning latte. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, he seems down to earth. It would probably go really well. He'd probably. <laughs> <both> with you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So there is a whole subset of content on the internet that's being labeled as oddly satisfying. Mm -hmm. So pimple popping, you could say, can certainly fall in that category. And it's really backed by research that I looked up. There is a professor named Robert Colombo. And he says that watching oddly satisfying videos causes the release of serotonin and dopamine, which bring about happiness and positivity and have a calming effect on people. But like we've said, you know, not every brand is in dermatology. Um, so what are some content ideas that brands and companies can implement to bring about that same feeling of happiness and positivity for their own customers? I think it's a pretty broad question to look at because there's just so many different categories of, of brands and companies out there that they there there's no universal answer I, I think you very much have to cater it to your consumer which you know a lot of these companies right now are trying to reimagine and figure out like who their consumer audience is and if you know if nothing else they're realizing that their consumer may be not spending right now or not someone that's genuinely interested so now more than ever, you're seeing a lot of brands do a lot of different recruitment campaigns and different strategies to kind of test the market and see 
you know, how their product or how their company or how their message correlates with different demographics of consumers. I, I don't disagree. I, I think there's, I don't know about the science and the serotonin and releasing endorphins and all that. Um, but I would say there absolutely is something that is relaxing uh, about putting you in that state of just you're in that moment, you know, regardless of where you are, whether you're sitting, you know, in 32 a on your Delta flight, or if you're sitting on your couch, you know, three glasses of Cabernet deep on a Tuesday night. And you're just like, <laughs> like, again, I think there's other factors that go into it beyond just the content that take place in the delivery and message of it. So if you are a company that is investing into um, paid advertisements, you know, where, you know, where that rolls out to where you're catching consumers and at what times is probably very important. Um, but if you're in long form content and that is something that lives, whether it's on television networks, media outlets, um, streaming services, you know, you have to have a whole strategy that's built into it. And you have to look at collaborations that I think that if there's anything that we've learned in marketing and sales over the last few years is that this has been the last few years and it could be arguably the decade of collaborations, you know, like we're seeing a lot of brands realize they're not as good or better than their competition. But when they come together with competition, even if it's a Wendy's and Burger King Twitter exchange, it does benefit both sides, regardless of who trumps who. And, you know, you kind of realize that the collaborations between brands can cause a greater rollout, obviously in numbers, but also it brings more buzzworthy PR, you know, moments and stuff that kind of moves the meter for, for earned media. So you know, overall, I think it's again about, you know, how you message it. I think more importantly, it's always about when you message it and roll it out. But I think much like we were talking about earlier with sales and, you know, getting people down in the marketing funnel, it's about retaining that consumer. So why does your content or why should your content be something that people want to look at again and show their friends? Or, you know, you remember the days back, you want to talk pop culture, like the AOL spam email chains, we would get the funny like stuff from Uncle Larry who would forward us that horrible spam joke. And you had email chains that have been forwarded to 75 other people before you from like Zimbabwe. You're like, who, who, what? And, but like, why would you want to do that now? Like, why would you want to DM that piece of Barstool content over to your friend? You know, like, that's what you have to think about. Like, why would you share it? And I think a lot of it has to relate personally. Like it has to have a personal approach, whether it's an inside joke, whether it's a moment, there has to be a personal connection and correlation to every single thing that we do more than ever, because people do care. They care probably more than they should in, in a lot of capacities right now. Um, and even on certain moments, they, they want to care because they have nothing better else to do sometimes than to grab onto something and really just get emotional and passionate about that. And I know I'll probably get ripped up, you know, for saying that a little bit, but it's true. We've all done it. You know, like I, I get on Twitter and I see stuff that people put on there and I know you're guilty of it too. And we want to comment. We like, for some reason in that moment, we're just like, ah, oh, we just want to say something, but we won't because we're worried about the domino effect of what could happen. And it, it just, I don't know. I think everything has personal emotion, you know, tied to it. And that's, that's really important for us to remember as, as consumers, as marketers, as humans in everything that we do. Yeah, I think a perfect example of that that we saw recently as far as collaborations go is Airbnb and Blockbuster. 
and just that nostalgic effect. I mean, that had, I don't know about, again, the serotonin and the dopamine, but I'm sure nostalgia <laughs> might trigger some of that for people. And we all had our own experiences with our um, blockbuster uh, sleep overnights and everything. It, it's something that we could cling to. And yeah, that really compelled us to share it with people. So I think, uh, I think that lines up perfectly with that. Absolutely. So, um, so I, in doing some research, I learned that Dr. Lee, at least initially, I don't know if she does it anymore, but in order to uh, gather all of these videos, she would offer discounted or free treatment to her patients mm -hmm. in exchange for them to give her written consent to upload their videos. I mean, I would be mortified, but, <laughs> but some people obviously have agreed to it. So I really think that's such dedication to her craft. Like she understands this is worth it to me to discount and offer a free service because I need to build this channel and build this brand. So I'm curious what you would say to a business owner who doesn't see the value in social media as a priority or someone who wouldn't, who couldn't fathom giving away a free service like that in exchange for content. Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is, is that you see it all too common today. Um, in my job, I have to reach out to brands cold turkey, you know, endlessly, day in and day out. The beautiful thing is that for one out of every 25 emails I send, I actually build a great relationship and they understand that it's not always sales. And it really is just genuine relationships and connections. But I fall into these traps where, and I don't say traps, but I do identify them very early on. From a brand marketing side, the easiest thing that you can do when working with influencers or athletes or even just day-to-day -day consumers is you're usually sitting on tons of product, right? Or you're sitting on this service that you can show people. You have an opportunity to show. Mm -hmm. If you look at from a service side, since we're talking about that, look at David Rock, you know, like D-Rock, who's Gary Vee's notorious videographer, you know, they preach like, do work for free, do work for free, build the case studies, build the examples. Look, they, they practice that, you know, to an extent, but come on, you know, we can't all live off of that. We can't continuously do that every single day. So there does become a sense of balance that I think is not necessarily communicated but it does have its success factors. You know, people can find the value in that and by doing and building and offering up your services for free. But also what a lot of people don't realize is that by doing something for free one to two to three times doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a $500,000 gig the next time around. It usually just means that you're going to open yourself up for more criticism and then you're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to build. You're going to have to, you know, rebuild and do it over again. That exercise takes a long, long time. And when you're in the medical field, like Dr. Lee, again, you know, you have to be, it's one of the few fields where you do have to be like an expert. You, you do have to be kind of a master and expert of your craft because there's insurance liabilities and things <laughs> that you have to worry about there. But going back to what I said from a marketing side, all too often, if you're a brand marketer, and if someone like myself comes to you and say, hey, I have this NASCAR Cup Series driver. He loves your product. We have all of this amazing opportunity. We have TV assets. We have podcasts. We have this. The number one thing that I usually hear is, sure, we would love to send them a box of gummy bears. You know, and, and again, let's, let's challenge you. Let's test you. If they post about it a lot, then cool, we'll continue the conversation. And it's so difficult because obviously I'm not making money off that. My client isn't going to make money off that. 
But if they really do genuinely love the product, why not? Like, why wouldn't you do it? You know, like there are certain companies and brands, like we do relationships for free. You know, there's, if the product's good enough, we'll absolutely do it for free because they're going to use it. And again, that relationship evolution is going to be easy. But if you're in a situation like Dr. Lee or anything like that, I don't understand why you wouldn't try and showcase it. If you're a consumer, there's more risk, I think, for you in that position than there is for the actual, you know, brand marketer or medical professional. Again, it's kind of a, a win-win, you know, for, for both parties. There's an equal amount of risk and reward in something like that. But when you bring it over to the world of brand marketing and sponsorship or partnership, it becomes a little bit more tactful. Like, you know, you have to be very strategic. Like, how much is too much? Like, how much do I give before I need to take a little bit? And it's a game of cat and mouse. And it really is tough to do because it's, it's business sales and strategy tactics. But to this specific example, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I think it's a brilliant strategy. And especially if you're already going to probably be making enough to get by, you realize that you can offer up four cases a month pro bono and do that through media documenting purposes. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah. I don't know how else she would have gotten people to agree to do it. So yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, it's, it's funny to think about. I bet there are people who go out of their way because they want to be on the show versus her having to twist their arms and offer free services before. So. Yeah. But I, do you really think that she had to offer too much? I think if someone can't like, let's, let's think about this a little bit and I, we're going and talking forever and I apologize if I'm taking oh, it. I love it. <laughs> um, but let's say if you or I had a massive growth on our back or neck, mm -hmm. right? If we've been to doctors several times in our lives and they're like, sure, we can do this. It's going to cost you $10,000 or it's going to cost you this. And we're like, we're not going to pay that, you know? Yeah. So, but if someone comes to you and says, let me try, like, as long as you let me document it, like we'll sign a medical release form. I like here are my credentials. So I'm not somebody that literally is just like, Hey, I stayed at a holiday Inn express last night and can do this. <laughs> but you know, how can we think about this differently and do it differently for both benefits? Why wouldn't you try it? As long as they're somewhat reputable and they have the credentials medically, like would it, like I'm asking you now, would you do it? Cause I would. I think as long as it were, as long as it was um, anonymous, I would probably do it. I don't think I would want people to know if I had a huge cyst on my back. <laughs> but um, yeah, if I could uh, retain my anonymity, I can never say it. Anonymity. Words. Words. Yeah, I would be down for it then, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable. I don't know if I would do it. But, but think about it this way, right? Like, you know, and again, I don't mean to challenge you, but I, I'm genuinely curious because I'm kind of putting you on the spot so we can get a little bit unscripted here. Yeah. Like if you, if you go to the beach and you're in a bathing suit and you kind of run that risk and it's just so uncomfortable, is the risk of almost a larger uncomfortable thing that ultimately will benefit you? And again, even as somebody that watches it will be like, wow, that's really cool versus because I, I know when I watch it, even if I see somebody call him Carl from Georgia, I'm not judging Carl from Georgia. I give Carl from Georgia credit. I'm like, man, that's cool. And I, I think my wife and, you know, my dogs, if, for whatever they're thinking, they think the same thing. They're like, yeah, Carl from Georgia. Good job. Like, don't you think that as you kind of sit there and weigh the options, you'd be like, it's, I don't really care. You know, I don't, I don't mind if people know me as Carl from Georgia or Brienne from Florida. Like, 
it, it's worth it. Like if I can almost have that like good outweighed odds, like, so what? I don't have to live with it now for the rest of my life versus right. the, the, the fear you're always going to have in the back of your head if it is there. You know? Right. And it's kind of like once, once you get over that fear and, you know, have the procedure and share your story, you'll inspire other people who could resonate with that or are going through the same thing. So I could see both sides, but it still makes me cringe a little bit. <laughs> Just thinking about <laughs> being on national television, having a cyst <laughs> popped on my back. Fair. Totally fair. Um, I mean... <laughs> It's, it's something that I just, I find it very interesting for me because it's about eliminating comfort zones and bringing them down. And, you know, so many people, we talked about those that are just very content and comfortable in every single thing that they do. Mm -hmm. Those, those people, they have a place and they have a purpose. That's totally fine. But if you try things a little bit differently, if you kind of throw caution to the wind and just say, I'm Brianne from Florida, here we go. Yeah. It's sometimes the risk is worth the reward. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I would probably just think about, you know, the next time I go and apply for a job and they're reviewing my resume and they Google me and then the whole office is gathered around a computer <laughs> watching my, my procedure. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. You know, but it's, it's like, you know, I, I personally, I applied to be on the real world, you know, years ago. And yeah. I went through, you know, several interview rounds and yeah. I, I wanted it so bad because I, I thought that I would be awesome on the real world. Yeah, but, I <laughs> but I was just like, I kind of had that same feeling. I, as I went through the process, I'm like, what happens to my life after real world? You know, like I, chances are I'm going to be the guy that's drunk and getting into fight with people. And, you know, I'm going to be the puck that everybody wants to follow. So, you know, if I'm not CJ or Puck, you know, who am I? And is it even worth it? You know, is it worth kind of taking that year off of my life to do it? And, you know, I, I didn't do it. You know, granted, I don't think, I, don't, I really don't know if I would have got to it, but um, it was, those conversations were progressing. You know, as I went through it, I made it, you know, through one or two combos with them. And I was like, ooh, and then I backed yeah. out. I was just like, man, uh, no, but. But your older self would do it now. Heck yeah. You're all about, heck you know, yeah. Taking down those barriers and comfort zones. I, I, I think about it a lot too with um, people that go on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and just some of them become known for that one scene or that one quote that they said. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if you're a fan, but right now in this weird off season where they're not really filming and everything, they went back and they uh, aired some old seasons and they allowed some of the old contestants to come back and be interviewed and kind of reflect on who they were then. Some of them are, you know, 10, 15 years older now. And it was such a, a great opportunity for them to kind of clear up, you know, their, their image or anything that they said or they regret or just how they've grown and progressed over the years. So, so yeah, I, I think that is also a plus of having a platform is you can evolve and um, grow from things that you've done or may have wanted to change um, on reality TV or otherwise. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And who doesn't love a good pilot Pete episode? Come on. Right. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. What was his mom was just crazy. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> so we did have someone on Twitter and we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but she was wondering um, how much of the success of the show do you think is due to Dr. Lee herself or really just our inherent interest in gross things? Could it have been any dermatologist doing these extractions or is there something about Dr. Lee that really changes it for people? I, I think her, 
her image and personality, it, it certainly helps. Like I said, you know, she's an older woman, but she's also still very beautiful, very approachable. Uh, you know, she has, you know, the, the exotic features of being, again, I don't want to guess on her, her heritage or race or anything like that, but you know, you can, you can kind of put two and two together to see that it's a little bit just different, right? It's not a blonde hair, blue eyed doctor, white doctor from SoCal that right. you might see on everything else with American mm-hmm. TV. Um, but I think a lot of it goes to her personality and I think it's the approachability, the way that she's almost a therapist and she embraces that, you know, she, she kind of has those conversations and she really gets to know and she gets to show the empathetic side of what she does. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily see that so much in the medical and healthcare field, especially now more than ever, you see, you know, the negativity of, you know, Oh, I had to wait in the doctor's office for 10 hours or, Oh, this nurse was so rude. And, but we often don't realize it. I say it biasly. Again, my wife is in the healthcare field, but there's so much more going on with these individuals' lives. They're human. They're balancing a lot of things. But I think with Dr. Lee, you see that empathetic side. Sure, it might be a little bit of an act and elaborated when the camera's on, but I do genuinely buy into the fact that that is who she is. I, I think you know, acting empathetically and and to show emotion like that is even the best of the best actors struggle with that, you know, to get people to buy into that. So I think that's a lot of, of what it is. I think the emotional side and the emotional connection that you see with Dr. Lee is huge. And I think a lot of people grasp to that more than they do so much the show. They genuinely love that she's just so kind and so caring and so approachable. And I think that is, that's just something that you don't always get. You either get the villain that you love to hate or you get the person that you're just like, oh, it's almost too good to be true. She's yeah. a perfect balance, you know? Like she's, she's really someone that we all can learn a little bit more from, you know, with just that empathetic and, you know, very emotionally organic side of how she is both professionally and personally. Yeah. And I love during those transformation moments, you know, people see themselves for the first time after they've had the procedure or whatnot. And she ends up hugging her patients. Like, it's a really sweet moment. So I, I totally get that. Um, so obviously, Dr. Lee has used social media to her advantage. Just building out her channels led to her show and just all of these opportunities now. So how important would you say your online presence is to creating opportunities for yourself from a, a personal brand standpoint? And what would you tell people who are trying to put themselves out there a little bit more and and unlock opportunities of their own. It's everything. Yeah. B- bottom line, it's everything. It, it, it's not even, there's no, there's no speech. There's no like crazy, like thing, soapbox moment I have right now here for you, Brian. It's, <laughs> it's everything. Because if we look at it from a moment in time where we're all stuck at home, I myself am in a 14 day quarantine right now from traveling out of state, you know, and coming back in. All I have is content. I have very little human face-to-face interaction. All we have is social media. All we have is, you know, the, the computers, the phones, and stuff like that. I myself struggle very, very much um, with my personal brand. Uh, I, I'll, I'll put that out there. I think you could see I do an okay job on Twitter, you know, which is good. But I think, I, I think it's very easy for me and it comes naturally just with that engagement. But with Instagram, with YouTube, anything like that, I can market a company, I can market an athlete. But I think as Jeremy Darlow has said before, 
the best marketers and the best brand individuals are the ones that have a personal brand that has succeeded, you know, well beyond before they touch somebody else's brand, because it is so much harder to build your personal brand more than anybody else's because (laughs) it's a mental game. You, you, like you are your own worst enemy. You're trying to do things differently. Um, but the one thing I will say that I, I can confidently speak to that I, I think I do an okay job with is I constantly am just communicating with people. Uh, there's, no, there's no sales tactic to everything that I do. Something like this, you know, where we had a quick exchange, next thing you know, a week later, we're on a Zoom, Zoom call. Like th- this, this is the good stuff, you know, and, and this is the stuff that I appreciate is that these are how long-term relationships build there are going to be moments in time where you come to me and you're going to be like, Hey Stallings, like, I, I think I could use help with this. Do you know somebody that could do that? Like vice versa. Hey, I saw you're connected with somebody here. Again, the connections alone um, are so important to what we do. And again, you don't need to be putting out the flashy content. You don't need to be the leader in everything that you do. You don't need to be the expert that gets 30,000 likes on a LinkedIn post. You need to be the person that's commenting on all those though. And you need to be learning from those and you need to kind of have that communication and dialogue. You need to be okay with failing and you need to be okay and more than okay with the fact that nine times out of 10, someone's going to criticize you. They're going to call you out and they're going to always try and trump you. They always are. No matter what you do, I can't put a compliment up to a former colleague uh, without getting 15 tweets back. Like, Oh, he's horrible. Like, how would you, Oh God. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, you don't know the individual as a person like I do. And it's not always professional accolades. It's personal too. So I would really say just eliminate the risk of fear. It's not so much about the knowledge you distribute, but it's the compliments and genuine communication tactics that help you really benefit and succeed. Questions are always better than answers. Um, anytime that I can ask more questions more than I'm answering them, I, I feel like I'm doing my part. Uh, so again, I, I feel awful. I dominated this conversation. No, no, no. This is such great advice. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, that's, but that's what it is, right? It's, it's really more about what you can give. And again, it's a Gary V model again. I love Gary. I I love his team. I, I often think his workings are criticized and not perfect for everybody. I personally am 50, 50 on it, but I do say that there's a lot of great things that you can pull from any piece of knowledge like that. And you can really find the benefit in just learning and communicating and learning through communicating. So, you know, that, that to me is just so important right now. Just communicate, just, just try, just talk. Uh huh. So well said. And the fact that you mentioned that building a personal brand is harder than a corporate brand. It's really because like you said, we have those fears. We have to get over that imposter syndrome. We don't have this logo to hide behind. It's like, Hey, this is me. You know, it, it makes us super vulnerable, but really in today's age, I, I don't think social media is really a choice anymore. It's really where you need to be if you want, you know, things to happen in your life. Absolutely. Age. Yeah. Agreed. Well, speaking of that, where can people follow you and check out all of your stuff and get more of your wisdom? No, uh, you don't want to follow my personal brand. I told you I'm <laughs> terrible at it. So don't, don't follow me there. Um, no. So my, my company and agency, a fellow group, uh, A-T-H-E-L-O group um, at the fellow group across all handles on social media. Um, if you so inclined and you've had one too many glasses of wine, feel free to follow a Stallings 88 and you can get all my personal knowledge 
across Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Again, only do it if you've had a few glasses of wine and if you want to chastise me for anything. I always welcome that. Or if you're watching a a Dr. Pimple Popper marathon. Please do that, but just don't send me photos of your personal pimple popping experiences. (laughs) Like, let's save that to Dr. Lee. Right, right, right. All right, Andrew, this was so much fun. Anything else to add? Anything else about Dr. Lee? I think we really did her her justice. Yeah, I, I think it's a good 360 experiment um, to understand these kind of crazy times. There's, there's no one-size-fits-all model to marketing. There's no one-size-fits-all model to anything that we do in life. Any knowledge that we've spoken about here today, I think should always be taken with you know a grain of salt. I think the best thing you can do and what we all can do is to just take information, take knowledge in hindsight and really try to, to take little small pieces of it and, you know, do better for what we want to do every single day. So I can't thank you enough again for the opportunity. Uh, it was crazy fun. Hopefully once COVID-19 pandemic slows down, um, I can get down to Florida. You can go up to Connecticut and we'll have a grand old time. Absolutely. We'll have to do that. And like I said, at least in the interim, Maybe I'll have you back for a sports topic sometime soon because um, that, on. yeah, that seems to be your wheelhouse as well. So we'll, we'll make it happen. Thank you so much. You were so much fun to talk to. No worries. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. If you're a fan of this podcast, be sure to subscribe or better yet, leave a review. You can also join my Twitter chat at hashtag pop chat for weekly pop culture discussions you can actually learn from. If you have an idea for an episode, shoot me a DM at Brienne2K. As always, thanks for listening.